that. <laughs> we're going to skip ahead. We were in chapter 9 last week, but we're skipping up to chapter 19 because of the special time of the year. And we're also going to do that again next week. And then we'll go back because <laughs> we don't want to miss out all the good stuff in between. So chapter 19, we'll pick it up in verse 28 and through verses to verse 48, and the king, he's either received or he's rejected. And let's pick it up in verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass that when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where he as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees said to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said to them, I tell you, if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Bless your word to us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we'll read through that section there where Jesus has arrived there at the Mount of Olives, his journey to Jerusalem. And I kind of want to set the, uh, how it came to be him there at the Mount. The journey's kind of interesting. And then uh, we'll also uh, look at him weeping over Jerusalem, and then uh, him also cleansing the temple, taking us to the end of that chapter, verse 48. So uh, Father Aban, who uh, died in 02, he was essentially an international community uh, voice for the Israeli people. Um, it was his conclusion that during this time in the first century, uh, there were about uh, three million Jews living there. Uh, there are about another four million scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and then yet another four million in Babylon. And so during this time of Passover, uh, uh, Jerusalem would swell to about two million people. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, and if you're familiar with that city, that's a lot of people in a small area, <laughs> jam-packed. They would offer about 250,000 lambs uh, during that time. And, of course, at that time, the, the Roman uh, soldiers were uh, on high alert. They're, everybody was uptight in leadership, especially the establishment, because they hated Jesus, and they knew that he was a controversial figure, and, and you know something 
uh, riots, the potential for riots and all kinds of things could happen. So it was a very intense time. It's an exciting time when you gather, they would gather for the festivals and the, you know, the feasts and all. And uh, you think about how the people got there. They didn't have cars. They didn't, you know, have their buggies, horse and buggies. They, they walked. And so uh, many of the Jews coming from the Galilee, uh, coming through uh, the northern part of Samaria, then along uh, the western side of the Jordan River, and then once they got about two-thirds of the way or so, a little more than half, I guess, uh, they would cross over onto the east side of the Jordan and come up uh, one of the travel routes known as the King's Highway. And as they uh, would make their way up there, as they were caravanning together because it was much safer because of you know, thieves and robbers and that kind of a thing, but when you're caravanning and thousands of people are together caravanning, it's a lot safer. So this, and as they got closer to uh, Jerusalem, which would have been close to Jericho, that multitude would have been following Jesus, just a huge crowd, huge caravan of people. They would cross the Jordan back to the, on the, to the western side and then make their way up to where we've read here to Bethphage and Bethany. Uh, these are the first little villages that they would encounter. Now, Bethphage, it means house of unripe figs, and Bethany is the house of dates. And um, also some refer to it as the house of affliction. You think about this for a minute, appropriately named at this time anyway, uh, house of unripe figs. Figs, as you know, the fig tree, uh, symbolic of Israel, the nation of Israel. Um, not a, a nation that was ready. They were unripe. They were not ready to receive the king. And of course, it led to, as we would say, affliction for the Lord Jesus but as he gets there, as we've read, he sends two of his disciples to fetch the donkey, the foal of an ass, and they go to the village, they find the colt, and it's just like Jesus said. And yet there's some application here I don't want to miss. I mean, why read the Bible unless you apply it to your life? I do believe the Bible is to be read devotionally. It's an intellectual quest for some scholars, but in reality, it's to be read devotionally. What is God saying to me through his word? And so what, what, what we can find here is when you walk with the Lord, you love the Lord, and you want to do his will, he'll tell you where to go. Will he not? Will he tell you what to do? Yeah. And he'll tell you what to say. Do you see it there? Go to the village, find the colt, and somebody says this, this is what you say. We don't have to figure it all out to do God's will. You know, sometimes we like it all laid out. You know why? Why is that? Why do we want God to just kind of tell us what the future is? And, and Because if he would, what would happen? Well, we decide whether or not we wanted to do it. <laughs> and if it was scary, we probably wouldn't do it. Would you do a lot of, the th- would you have done what you've done so far if you'd have known how it was going to roll out? You'd, you'd have been hindered. So you just take one step at a time. He tells you where to go. He told you to move to Greenville area, didn't he? Except for some of you visitors. Maybe he'll tell you to move here. I don't know. <laughs> but you're here. He told you, he showed you where to go. And he's showing you, and in the process, daily, showing you what to do. And he surely, if he's done the first two, he will surely tell you what to say. 
the purposes of God, understand this, is using people. The Lord, isn't that an interesting thought? The Lord has need. Can you think of anything that God could possibly need? He sort of relegated his needs to the interaction with men, so he depends upon mankind. He's delegated authority to us. He's delegated responsibility to us. So in that sense, he is of need. He could do it, or he could send the angels to do his bidding completely. We could just be bystanders, but that's not how he's chosen to work. Because he gave dominion to the earth, of the dominion of the earth to mankind. He didn't give it to angels. He didn't leave it up to himself. He gave it to mankind. You know, you think about, this is probably one of the first things that happens to us after we become Christians. Lord, what would you have me to do? Remember Paul on his way to Damascus? Got knocked off his high horse. The light, whoa. What was the first words out of his mouth after his conversion? Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to walk? That's one of the most important questions to ask the Lord. I wonder what it is the Lord would want me to do. Now, riding on a donkey, uh, uh, the foal of a donkey, uh, is a fulfillment of Scripture, Zechariah 9.9. It's a dramatic occasion. Um, this donkey had never been ridden before, so it was suitable for him, suitable for sacred purposes. We know, uh, for example, from Deuteronomy and Numbers, when they're dealing with the red heifer, uh, it had to be uh, a beast upon which a yoke had never come. It was unused. It was virgin, if you will. And so here we have this colt, un, uh, used, unridden, uh, Dedicated for the sacred purpose of God. And so this is sort of how God sees us. We're his chosen. We're his special. We're his virgin, uh, as it were, his bride. And uh, he has sacred purposes for our lives as well. Now, this is not a normal manner for kings to ride upon the foal of a donkey. What do kings ride on? Well, we know that they ride on horses and they come with this great pomp and circumstance, right? And that will be at the second coming of the king. What will he be riding on? A white horse, followed by the armies of heaven. He will come, the one whose name is faithful and true, the one who will make war with righteousness, and he will judge. He comes as a meek and lowly servant of the Yahweh here, but he'll come back as a roaring lion, and he will take vengeance upon those who know not God and those who hate God. The God-haters will be judged. And so what we see in this first coming is this meekness expressed through him riding on this colt, the foal of a donkey. People were spreading their clothes. Uh, Matthew 21 tells us that they also were cutting down the palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, and laying them. And this was a great uh, celebration because they were receiving him as the king, except some were not. And the Pharisees were quick to point that out because they hated Jesus. He did not fulfill their expectations as Messiah. They actually thought Jesus was demon-possessed. 
that all these miracles and this deception that had happened to the common people was all under the demonic influence of the enemy. And they couldn't have been more blinded by their pride and their arrogance because they had a different expectation of Messiah. See, they were politically minded, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were interested in being free from Rome's yoke. And they were looking for the Messiah, a man who would come along and deliver them from the influence and control of, of, of Rome. And Jesus had none of that. He knew that, that their bondage was not into Rome. Their bondage was sin. They were in bondage to sin. That needed to be dealt with. They could, he could kill Rome a hundred times over and they would still be slaves to sin. So he came to set people free. Not only the Jewish nation and the people of his own people, but all of mankind to provide atonement and forgiveness for all of us. This is what it's about. This is what the first coming was about. He came uh, as a lamb to be slaughtered for our atonement. You know, how many people have been driven away by the hypocrisy of religion and what goes on in the churches? Those in positions of authority who use the word of God to lord over people, to control them, to lay the law upon them, much like the Pharisees. You know, Jesus isn't what we expected, so, you know, what should they uh, be doing? They should have been looking for the right guy, the one that was really described in, their, in the scriptures that they uh, knew, but they were selective, and they had their uh, confirmation bias, and Jesus didn't fit that at all. It's really sad because, because of they're so strong in their desire to have Rome removed, they weren't really doing their job. What was their job? Their job was to create a nation that would be spiritually healthy, that they would uh, know and understand when the Messiah would come. There was a, uh, another group of people that... Uh, were separate from the Sadducees. It was sort of like at that time, there were sort of like three denominations, if you will. There were the Sadducees, the liberals of the day. There were the Pharisees, who were the conservative, self-righteous hypocrites, uh, essentially. They had their doctrine was right in a lot of ways, except for the traditions of men that they pushed upon the people, making their traditions of the fathers equivalent with Scripture, which is a big mistake. But they had a lot of the doctrines right, in that sense. But there was another group that was right, not only in doctrinally, because they stood with the biblical format to it, to the best of their ability, and that would be the Qumran community, the Essenes. And uh, a lot of the scholars believe that a lot of the disciples, a number of the disciples and the people in Israel uh, didn't live near the Dead Sea, but they were part of that denomination, if you will. And they understood that Messiah was coming and they understood the description of the Messiah and that he would die for the people so not everybody was blinded not everybody was taken off uh, taken back by the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ uh, some have actually expected it you know sometimes we forget the importance of sound doctrine and that this is really what the church is about see the Pharisees their job was really to prepare the people prepare their hearts to worship God and to, to love the Lord God with all their hearts but so many of them, as they misused the scripture, misused their authority, it turned the people off. Well, you guys are the gatekeepers, and if that's what it's all about, I don't need this. And you, have you ever heard that kind of speech even in our day? I'd go to church, but if that's all it's about, all I want is my money, all I want is this, that, you know. 
Where's the reality in their lives? You know, that's why we emphasize the teaching of the word. We know we're not perfect people. We know leadership can never be perfect. We're not, and God knows that and he understands it, but it's the heart that God is looking upon. And, and the, the way the heart is affected is through sound doctrine. You think about uh, what happens when sound doctrine is not taught and it's not modeled. The inevitability is that people will turn away from the Lord. I want no part of that. If that's what it's about, I want no part of that. I, that you, there's nothing that sounds worse in my ears than to hear those kind of statements from people who've been burned by church, by organized religion, so to speak. On the other hand, and there is another side to this, a good side. When sound doctrine is taught and it is modeled by people like the apostles in the New Testament, what they would do after Pentecost, the good that followed was immeasurable. And that's true today. If we will follow sound doctrine, and if it will be taught and modeled in the churches, the good that will follow is immeasurable. This is what Paul said to Timothy as he wrote to the young pastor just beginning his ministry as a pastor there in Ephesus. And he gave five relevant things in that first chapter in regards to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine... This is, if you're taking notes, 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7. Sound doctrine creates love from a pure heart. It creates a good conscience. It creates sincere faith. It's a safeguard from going astray. It gives you the staying power to stay on the path of righteousness. It helps us overcome our ignorance of the truth. You know, this is a problem in the church. People do not know the word of God. They don't know the Bible. And what they do know, they don't really understand very well. Ignorance is not something that should be present in the church. We should know at least the general plan and purpose of God for our lives. We should have a good working knowledge of the scriptures, which means we have to give ourselves to reading it on a regular basis. So, so as stated earlier, Jesus was not what they expected in the Messiah. You know, uh, isn't that true uh, that we don't always recognize the ways of the Lord? Um, you know, they're, they're expecting uh, this triumphant king that would take it, the Rome off their back. You know, when a, when a king would come and victoriously from war riding on his horse, what is he bringing forth? The pride the strength, the, we did it, self-sufficiency, all of that. And yet Jesus is coming what? Because the donkey represents peace. He's coming in peace. He's offering peace to the nation rather than as a conquering king. From this we can conclude that Jesus is humble. And I believe that the servants of God, those of us who are part of the body of Christ, sons of light, daughters of light, we're to conduct ourselves as our our king, as a humble servant. You know, sometimes uh, we don't understand how could God possibly humble us? How could he possibly transform a, a prideful human heart? Well, humility is a result of the inner man being graced 
by the presence of God. When we really enter into the presence of God and we are in worship, we, are, we now see ourselves as God sees us rather than as we see ourselves. And that is imperative that we see ourselves as God sees us. Sin can humiliate us, but only grace can humble us. Jesus is the most humble of all mankind. And sin had nothing to do with his humility. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and the grace of God was upon him for his service to the Father. He perfectly imaged God in all the things that he did and especially in this area of humility. Do you realize that there's no more humble being in the universe than God himself? You think about his expression in the word when, he, when he's talking about himself, what does he point to? Job, particularly. Job, you're bummed out, you're discouraged. <clears throat> let's, take a, let's take a walk through creation. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? One of the most humble statements about God's humility is actually found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. And he made the stars. Have you looked at the stars lately? Do you go out at night and get away from the light pollution and just look up at the stars? That'll put you in your place real quick. And, he, and that's all he said. That's all he says. He made the stars. Do you understand what it took to make the stars? I haven't a clue. I know. I'm, I'm flabbergasted by creation. I'm just blown away. How could anyone make all of this? Even in its fallen state, it is absolutely, incredibly put together. Can't imagine what heaven's going to be like. Unfallen, untainted by sin. But we see in Christ's way here, his meekness. And we see him fulfilling the scriptures over and over. Malachi says that he would come suddenly into his temple. Malachi 3.1. In his vision, Ezekiel sees the Lord coming uh, to the sanctuary in an awesome, terrible judgment. And this is, again, uh, his coming here. But before judgment, what does God do? He weeps. We pick it up in verse 41. It says, he drew near and he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known even you, especially this, your day, the things which make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. Always before judgment. God weeps. As you read in chapter 13, stuff we skipped over to get to chapter 19, verse 34, it says that Jesus was lamenting over Jerusalem. Now we see him fully crying. Yes, people are praising him and worshiping, but he's crying because he knows what's going to happen. God is going to visit in judgment. But before we get to judgment, we have to understand what visit, visitation is all about. Its basic meaning is to, 
to determine destiny. That's what a visit from God is about. It's not a social call. When God visits the people, it's always about divine intervention for blessing or for cursing. But it always changes the destiny of the individual. Now, do you remember when God first visited you? What happened? Many of you that are sitting here, you became Christian. God visited me, as you know, when I was 18 years old, sitting in the living room of my home. And there was a visitation. I had really understanding of what was going on in, in the sense of the, how God worked by his spirit. But his spirit came upon me to convict me of sin and what was right and what I was doing was wrong and I needed forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit brought all that right there and I responded moment by moment to that. It, was a, it changed my destiny. Your destiny has been changed. You're here this morning. You were here this morning to worship because God intervened in your life. He had a visitation with you. Job, in his book, and as he's miserably in discomfort, wonders why and is amazed by the fact that God would even mess around or even have anything to do with humankind. Why would he lower himself to deal with mere human beings? Because he loves them. And he cares about them. And he has good intentions for their destiny. That's why. This is an interesting word throughout the scripture. Joseph in chapter 50 said, look, I'm dying. And God's going to visit you as a people, as a nation. And he's going to bring you out of this land. He's going to fulfill his promise. See, God's visits to you, to us, have something to do with him keeping his word for his people. Jesus is weeping here because he understands that they're not going to respond. And the result is that they're going to experience serious pain because they're going to reject him. They're going to kill him, and he understands that. And what happened, and it, it took a, another 30 years or so, but in 70 AD, Rome had enough of these hypocrites, and they destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And as Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another as the soldiers worked so hard to retract the gold that had melted and ran between the rocks from the flames and the heat that had caused it to melt. They wanted the gold, and so they destroyed the temple to acquire it. When God visits, his primary motive is salvation. He wants to save. He doesn't want to destroy. He's not after judgment. There's no pleasure, as it says, there's, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But notice the phrase that he says here. We're not going to spend any time into it, but you can look into it. It's actually a fulfillment of prophecy. You talk about God's ability to stay on track with his purposes and his sovereign will to be executed despite the rebellion of man. It says, as Jesus said here, if you had known even you, especially this, your day. There's something pointed there. In Daniel, and you can write this down and maybe do a little homework on your own, uh, Sir Robert Anderson put together an interesting uh, write, uh, uh, writing about this. He 
took the 360-day calendar, the biblical calendar, and he did the math on that vision of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which is broken into seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week. And at the end of 62 weeks, it says that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, but for transgression. So he did the math from the time that the commandment was given to go forth and rebuild the second temple until the coming, and it actually matched that, what we call Palm Sunday, that very day of the triumphant entry. If Jerusalem had known, if the people and the nation of Israel had known this very day that the king of the universe was coming riding to them on the foal of a donkey, but they missed it. If you had only known, they missed it. They're our decision because the establishment had not prepared the people to receive the Messiah. They had not done their job. And as a result, we read in verses 45 through 48, Jesus went in to clean the temple once again. This is the second time he did this. He did this in John 2, uh, 13 through 20, when he first began his ministry in the first Passover that he went to. He went in there. He had made a cat of nine tails, and he went in there, and he, he cleaned out the temple. And now he's doing it again as he's about to leave. He recognizes the abuse in the temple precincts. And he understood the purpose of God for the temple, a place where they could meet God, that it was to be a house of prayer. He went to the temple in verse 45 and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, and they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. The court of the Gentiles is where all this was taking place. There was two kinds of trading that was going on there. There was the money changing, the exchange of the currency from the... Roman coin to the shekel, the, what the Jews used, and then the selling of the doves, you know, and the buying of the lambs and sacrificial animals. And they were just, they all banded together to plunder the people. Oh, you can't use your lamb. It's, I, there's a little defect. There's a, there's a defect. You can't use that one. But you can buy one of these at an inflated price. And so they misused their position, and this was a stumbling block to the people. Now, it's important, I think it's important to get a little bit of picture of, of we call it the temple, but in, there are two different words that are used in the New Testament for temple. One of them is the temple itself, the naos, is, which is the holy place and then the holy of holies. So this would have been deeper into the temple precinct area uh, where the, the, only the priests could go. And then in the holy of holies with was the place that only the high priest could go only once a year uh, during the Day of Atonement. And so the outer area, including all the courts, would have become the Herion, the whole area. So we call that the temple precinct, and then the temple itself is called the Naos. And so in, in the temple precinct, we had the court of the Gentiles, which only the Gentiles could come into. And this is where all this bantering and you know the noise and the animals bleeping sheep and cooing birds and all this going on and just 
you know, you're a Gentile and you want to come and seek the Lord and all you can hear is all this. You can see why it was upsetting to the Lord. These people are actually seeking God and there's so much distraction they can't even think straight. And besides that, they're being ripped off on top of it. They're being exploited. And then there was the court of the women. You know, you kind of had to progress your way in. And then the court of the Israelites. And then lastly, the court of the priests as described earlier. So this is sort of the layout. So the very people who were representing God to the people were the greatest cause of hindrance for people coming to know the Lord. Now you can imagine how God feels about that. So Jesus is expressing exactly the heart of the Father here. You guys have made this a den of thieves. Get out! And I, you know, love and anger are often mixed together. And it's not a selfish anger. It's a righteous indignation of what was happening, keeping people from coming to know the Lord. God is a jealous God. He hates this kind of abuse. And Jesus drove them out, turned those tables over, and dealt with the distractions. And, you know, sometimes we, our, people wonder why we do our services the way we do them. Why do we send the little people downstairs during the main service here? Nothing against the little people. We just want them to learn on their level. <laughs> and, and not only that, they're a little distracting. They're cute, but they're a little distracting sometimes. So they have their place where they can learn on their level. We have our place where we can learn on our level. This is a choice that we've made here at Calvary. But what is the purpose of the house? We know that Jesus went in there during this week before they arrested him, and he taught. You ever notice Every time there's a crowd around, what does Jesus do? He does miracles, yes, but he primarily teaches them. He's trying to get away, as we read uh, several times. Disciples are busy. They're wore out. They're going to a deserted place to get away, to just rest, and the people just keep coming, and, and he doesn't get angry with them. He's filled with compassion. They were a sheep without a shepherd because the leadership, the establishment, wasn't doing their job. Hungry sheep need to be fed. And Jesus fed them. He taught them. And this is what pastors are to do. We're to feed the flock. This is the exhortation given to us by the apostles. Feed the flock of God that is among you. So the purpose of the house of God is to teach and also for prayer. And this is, again, one of the reasons why we pray on Sunday mornings. We open it up. And I'm praying that God will teach us to help us to grow in our prayer time here. We have not yet arrived. Some point in time, I assume that this will become more like a birthing center as we begin to learn to go deeper with God in our prayers and to intercede and to pray for our nation and to pray for our loved ones and to reach out and to just be uninhibited by who might be sitting next to us and what they might think if we get a little emotional. There's nothing wrong with becoming passionate in your prayers before God. We're not here to make a scene. We're here to talk to God and to pour out our hearts to him. You can do that silently as well. But we're to, this is why we spend and emphasize prayer here at the church. The church of Christ advances upon its knees, and there's no other way forward except through prayer. So 
the lessons we pick up from this, distractions are important to deal with in our lives. Don't let things, don't be distracted from your pursuit of God in your, in your discipleship and your walking with him. And avoid people who profiteer and use the church for financial gain. It's a grievous thing. You know, we pay pastors, and that's quite well. Don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, but those that are profiteering from it, they're just in it for the money, God will judge that. Using God for material gain, I hate to stand before the Lord with that one, but some will. And Jesus just poured out his heart his last week. Everyone that came to him in the temple that needed healing were healed, the lame. He taught them. I want to end with a couple encouragements about prayer. I think it's so important. This is a special week as we prepare our hearts to observe what he did on the cross. This is a, we just do this once a year. It's like, uh, as someone prayed this morning, we hope we take this holiday as seriously as we do Christmas, or more so, the cross. So important, the resurrection, so critical. Prayer, what is it about prayer? It's not the easy way out. It's not pushing things on God for him to take care of since we don't want to do it. But actually, prayer gives us the ability to do something about it. As we pray, we're empowered, we're directed, we're, we're told where to go, what to do, and what to say. And that's important. It also gives us the ability to accept certain things. Not all prayers are answered in a preferable way. Paul was afflicted by Satan, a thorn in the flesh, he called it, and he prayed three times that the Lord would deliver him from it. And God said, my grace is sufficient. So not every prayer that we pray will be answered in a preferable way for us. But it will be answered. And we, Prayer is one of the ways that we are able to accept God's will Jesus prayed if it was God's will that the cup that he was about to drink would pass from him. Well, it didn't pass. And aren't you thankful? Aren't I thankful? Aren't we all thankful that Jesus drank the cup and provided atonement for us? Prayer gives us the ability to accept the will of God, regardless of how difficult it might be. It gives us the ability to bear up what's inevitable, it helps us through our weakness. Prayer doesn't remove tragedy from our lives. It doesn't give us the ability to escape the situation always. But it does make us able to bear up under it and receive the grace that he extends in the midst of the unfaceable situations. When we're past the breaking point, and we are crushed. Prayer is God's delivery system of the grace we need to make it through. So as you spend your week contemplating what Jesus did on the cross for you, take time to pray. Take time to examine your life. Take time to enjoy the visit that you have with God. And maybe you haven't apprehended what God apprehended you for. And maybe he, in your time of prayer, he'll give you an assignment of what to do, of where to go, 
maybe of what to say. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. You're so faithful to us, Lord. And when we read this story over once a year to remind us of what you were willing to pres- uh, do for, on our behalf, it's just mind-blowing, Lord. It's hard to comprehend that the courage and the boldness that you exhibited in the midst of what you knew would be your last days and last hours. What courage. What a brave soul. What a powerful Savior you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. We pray that you just continue to do that special work in all of our lives. Make us like you, Lord. We want to imitate you. As the scripture tells us, is to imitate you as you imitated the Father. Give us that same grace. Bless our week. Go before us. Put your angels round about us as we go in, as we come out, Lord. Put a joy in our heart. Put a song in our heart. Give us a grateful heart, a grateful spirit. Help us to express our thankfulness more and more because you are so good. In Jesus' name, shall we stand?